Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Prayers of King David, today with a message titled, The Two Books. So turning your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Psalm 19 is a wonderful psalm. Many people have studied it and even more simply love listening to it. It's the psalm about the two books that God has written. You know, every once in a while, perhaps I should say quite often, one will hear or read people say, well, you know, we can't know for sure if there's a God or even if we know if there is a God, we can't know what he's saying. It's all unclear. And behind this is the theme of the silence of God. I mean, why isn't God speaking? Well, James Hamilton told a story that I think bears repeating. Before the days of refrigerators, people used ice houses to preserve their food. Ice houses had thick walls, no windows, very tightly fitting doors. In the winter, blocks of ice would be hauled into the ice house and covered with sawdust. And in the summer, if it was done right, the ice would last through until winter. Hamilton says, while filling the ice house one winter, one man lost his watch. Everyone looked for it. No one could find it. You know, in those days, watches were very expensive. The loss was great. But one little boy said, no problem, I'll find it. Well, sure enough, sometime later, he showed up carrying the watch, and when asked how he found it, he simply said, well, I lay down in the ice house, I closed the thick door, was very still, and in the silence, I just listened. Soon I heard the watch ticking. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an illustration of why some people just never hear God. God is speaking. He's always speaking. But you have to listen, and you have to know what to listen for. Well, surprisingly enough, it's easier than you might think. In fact, God knows how badly we listen, so he has written for us two books. And on both of these books, they're overwhelmingly bestsellers. Let me also say that both of these books have sold more copies than any other book in the history of this planet. They are books that can be read by all. In fact, the first of those books lies on every single shelf of every single person, in every single time period in the whole world. I mean, you talk about a runaway bestseller, talk about God speaking. What's the book? It's the book of nature. It's described for us in the first section of Psalm 19. So I'm reading Psalm 19, 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So what do we learn about God from the book of nature? And what does this book actually teach and say? You know, surprisingly, there are scientists who have spent their lifetime reading it and still do not understand what it says, and that's odd. Let me explain what I mean. You know, some years ago, Time magazine had the following article. It said, the experts don't know for sure how old or how big the universe is. They don't know what most of it is made of. They don't know in any detail how it began or how it will end. And indeed, it might seem that this book of nature is the most puzzling book humanity has. How can we read what seems unreadable, that which no person has read to the end or understood? But are we right in that? Is this book, in fact, unreadable? Look again at verse 1. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Let me point out a single word in verse 1, and it's the word God. The Hebrew word is simply El, God. Now, when we get to verse 7 and following, El is no longer mentioned. Instead, Yahweh, or the Lord, is mentioned not once but seven times. Yahweh, that's his covenant name, his personal name, the name which we must know to have a relationship with him. The book of nature tells us nothing about his personal name. It tells us nothing about God's love or his covenants or his dealings with people in history. The book of nature does not fill us in on any of the details we most want to know about God. So we're left with the puzzle that Time Magazine reported, or is there more? What does the book of nature tell us? How does it read? Well, the book of nature describes the splendor of God, and you can see this. Even without the Hubble or the James Webb telescope, or without a device needed to see microscopic organisms. But here's an assignment. If if you want to begin to read the book of nature, get out of the city. Don't take a radio or a TV. I mean, sometime during the summer, get out in the clear night sky, no other lights, lie on your back, stay absolutely still, and you'll need at least an hour to do this. Simply gaze into the night sky. Don't talk to anyone. Just observe. Observe Orion. Locate the North Star. Watch the Big and Little Dipper, the host of stars that make up the Milky Way, and say with Psalm 8, these are the work of his fingers. You'll be stunned by how it affects you. Now watch two words in verse 1. The first word is declare. The second is the word proclaim. Those are speaking words, words for the thunder of God's voice, words that help you hear him. And what is it that God is speaking? Well, two words. The first is glory, and the word glory comes from a root word which means heavy or weighty. In other words, the resume of God or his noteworthy achievements are of great weight, are heavy, impressive, indeed so impressive that the one with those credentials deserves the highest honor that can be given. The second word, handiwork, this is what the Creator has made. That's exactly what the book of nature teaches us. God deserves the highest honor that we can bestow on him. Indeed, the best books we can write on any subject ought to be written about God. The best use of our energy, creativity, and work ought to be a hymn about God. The best songs ought to be sung about God, not about how we feel about God, which are simply songs about us, but they ought to say something about God. See, every once in a while, someone's going to say, you preach more about God than self-esteem or how to have a healthy marriage, how to lose weight, or how to succeed in your plans. I mean, why is that? Aren't you worried you won't be relevant to people's lives? Well, no, I'm not worried. If I talk about God, my issues are solved when I'm finally wrapped up in something bigger than myself. God's works are weightier than other things. The book of nature declares the glory of God. He has created us, and I must cry, glory. Now, this is exactly what Paul argues in Romans 1. He argues that nature teaches us that we have an infinite obligation to worship. And the explanation of all the darkness and depravity in the human race and in culture is because we have failed here to worship. That's what we learn from the book of nature. And we also learn that this book is universally read and understood. You know, when verses 2 to 3 tell us that day to day pours out speech and there is no speech where the voice of nature is not heard, you know, that phrase to pour forth speech can also be translated as to bubble forth speech. Every part of the creation breathes and bubbles out. I am the product of the creator. 
Notice also that nature is read in generalities and in specifics. Look again at verse 4. Their voice goes out through the whole earth. In other words, taken as a whole, all of nature speaks of God, but also in specifics, the course of the sun. And here is poetic language, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, comes out every morning and returns to his chamber at night. Whether in generalities or specifics, all nature speaks. Whether you just breathe in the air on a given day and say, God is great, or you examine a part of nature from a scientific perspective, both speak of the grandeur of the Creator. That is the point. If only people of any culture would read this book, they would know enough of their infinite obligation to worship. And they should cry out because of what they have seen and because of the way that God cares for them in nature, they should cry out, glory. In fact, if you had never read a Bible, if you couldn't even read a single sentence of anything, if you'd never heard a missionary, if you didn't have parents who taught you about God still, still, every day, you know, when you woke up, Nature would be for you the voice of God telling you that you have an infinite obligation of thankfulness and of worship towards the one who made all things. You should be overwhelmed at his presence. This then is God's first book. But so much is left out. You wouldn't know whether God was kind or whether he was cruel, whether he was interested in you or whether he simply ignored you and you were so insignificant. So many things would be hidden from you. And so God has written a second book. It is the book of Revelation. It is the book that's called the Bible. And in that book, God is personally named. Suddenly we come to verse seven of Psalm 19. God is no longer simply just called God. He's called the Lord, which is his covenant name. Now in the Hebrew language, the name is Yahweh. The point is that the scriptures, the Bible, is in fact a personal revelation of God. It's God personally introducing himself to the human race. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery. Time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and times of worship and song with feature musical guest Amanda Stott. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate. If, as Time Magazine pointed out so well, there's more we don't know about creation than we do know, doesn't it then logically follow that the Creator is greater than the creation? So then, there is so much more we don't know about God than we do know. 
See, in one sense, the thought of God is so vast that it's impossible for us to get our mental arms around him. He's infinitely greater than our highest thought. The Bible, God's written word, the second book, to use our language, is not a book about everything. It won't tell you how large the universe is. It won't even tell you the history of all the nations of humanity but will tell us about the nature of God and about his loving plan to reconcile a doomed and ruined humanity to himself. Yeah, God has written his second book, the Bible, the record of his dealings in history, the record of who he is personally. So let's start with Psalm 19, 7 to 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, these verses form six lines of thought, and from them, you know, I want to form three distinct points. Notice from the six sets of statements, you know, what the Bible is called. It is one, the law of the Lord. Two, the testimony of the Lord. Three, the precepts of the Lord. Four, the commandment of the Lord. Five, the fear of the Lord. And six, the rules of the Lord. Now, from those six statements, I know that, first, the Bible is a book that describes what God wants of us. In other words, God has given his laws, his commandments, his rules, his precepts. He has called us in fear to obey, to trust, and to act. Now, I need to stop here because for many people, even Christians, the term law is entirely negative. Jesus, we quote, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, we say. So for them, the law is a curse. But here I think we do ourselves immeasurable harm. How can this psalm find the law so beautiful? And how can the psalmist of Psalm 119 cry out, how I love your law when it's a curse? No, no. When Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, we ought to know exactly what's being said. So first of all, Galatians 3 verse 10 explains the situation. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, failure to keep the law brings a curse. We're cursed because we've transgressed or violated the law. And you don't get out of this mess by redoubling your efforts and trying harder. Because the harder you try, the more you're going to see how you fall short. Imagine you're on trial for murder. You stand before the judge. You say, okay, I know this murder thing. That's a problem. I'm guilty. Judge, you might give me minus 20 points for that, but then again, I've never raped anyone, so you ought to give me plus five for that. Now I'm only at minus 15. And by the time you're done, you're convinced that the state owes you something for all the good that you've done. That system is not what the Bible teaches. All who think that's how things go, that God's holding a scale in his hands, weighing out your good deeds against your bad deeds, and as long as you stay on the positive side, you're good. All who rely on that system of thinking, they are under a curse. Indeed, if you break the law in any place, any law, good stuff won't compensate for law-breaking. Now then, Christ has redeemed us from that by becoming a curse that is by taking up the curse for us. So then what's good about the law? Well, everything. Without the law, you wouldn't know that you're a sinner. Listen to how people talk. They say, look, I I know I'm not perfect. God knows I'm not perfect. I'm sure he'll take that into account. But as it is, I'm doing the better than most. So I think if there's a God, I'm going to be fine. And they believe that. It's not until you know what God wants that we find out that trying hard is not good enough, not with God. 
This book, the Bible, is a description of what is good enough. And you know what God commands? He commands perfection. And you know how well you're doing? You're failing. So the Bible is a book that describes what God wants. God demands perfection. Second, the Bible is a book of perfection. There is no defect in the Bible. When David describes the law, he uses six words. One perfect, two sure, three right, four pure, five clean, and six true. I know that in this world, nothing's perfect, well, except this one book. I know that there have been a great deal of debate around the idea of the you know, inerrancy of Scripture, and some have argued they simply don't believe that all of the words of the Bible are true or reflect the heart of God. Now listen to these words from David when describing God's written revelation of himself. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. Or listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Or listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Not some of it, or the major chunks of it, but all of it. All is, in fact, the breath of God, from the incidentals to the major pieces. Or listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter 1, 20-21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Those of you who are in the know will know that during the last 30 years or more, there has been in the evangelical world you know, a great battle over whether this book is God's word without error. And that battle has created great harm, and it's caused some to mistrust the scripture. Some have wandered from the faith. It's beyond the scope of this sermon to simply defend the inerrancy of scripture, but I've done so elsewhere. Let me say it here. There is no good reason to mistrust any word of scripture. Indeed, Jesus, our Savior, trusted every word of it. I've said that the Bible describes what God wants. Second, that it is a perfect book. And third, it's the most satisfying book that's ever been written. Listen to the effects of God's written word in the believing heart. Number one, they revive the soul so that you have a reason for life. Second, they make simple people into wise people. Three, they make your heart rejoice and lift you from sadness to pleasure. Four, they enlighten your eyes so you'll begin to understand the world, your life, your future, and your God. And five, it endures forever. When other thought systems come and go, this one is enduring. And finally, six, it is altogether righteous. No false way is found in it if you follow this. In fact, David says that you should desire this book more than you would desire gold. Think for a moment how much time is spent in making money and providing for yourself and your family and your future, all of that stuff. If you want a satisfying life, know this book, read this book, eat this book, memorize this book, and order your life according to this book. Now to the end of the psalm, Psalm 19, 10 to 14. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know, in short, let this book, the Bible, define you. I hope you notice two things here. 
The first is what we call hidden faults. Uh, these are the kind of things that may be hidden from us or from others. The same is also true of presumptuous sins, the ones when I'm in full rebellion. It is the word of God that strips away my defenses. It's the word that places me before God with nothing to defend myself with. Let the Bible direct the course of your heart. You know, the word meditation is often misunderstood. Did you know that everyone actually meditates? Yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, let's say someone you admired has now insulted you, and chances are you're going to be meditating on that all day long and perhaps longer. Meditation simply means going over a thought system over and over again. But now with the same energy and intensity that you might have meditated on someone who did evil against you, meditate on the Lord and on what he said. Ask yourself, what did it mean? How does it relate to my life? And then fill in the blank. How should I respond? How will my life change? How does this help me in prayer? What will this do to all my relationships? What will this do in my thinking about God? I began speaking about that little boy who found a watch by listening silently for the sound of its ticking. I commend you to do the same. Have a look at nature and see in the first book the declaration of the glory of God. But then take even more time in the second book and meditate on the rich mercy of God found in Jesus as he takes upon himself all of your sins, as he bears the curse of the law away, and as you are presented whole before God, and reflect on the fact that you are loved by God and that God has chosen you to make you his own and understand what God has for you. Read both books, apply them to your lives, and know what God is saying to you. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, do you think science and faith are in constant contradiction to each other? Well, you know, we think that way in our day. It's simply because of what has happened in evolutionary biology or the theory of evolutionary biology. But in truth, in terms of hard science and not in terms of theories, but in terms of what's actually observed and what can be tested and so forth, there is nothing in this world that we can look at that is in violation to the Word of God. Yes, theories may come that do um, speak against our own faith, but not the hard sciences. So I'm going to say we should rejoice, you know, when the Hubble telescope is showing us things that, you know, we've never seen with our eyes before. I mean, we should rejoice at the greatness of what God has done and glory in our Creator. So uh, let me encourage us um, not to think of science as the enemy, but to think of, you know, um, ungodly philosophies, they are the enemy. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Prayers of King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. If you found yourself struggling with your self-esteem, I can assure you, you're certainly not alone. Our self-esteem is fragile. It can blow up with kind words or accomplishments and crumble with failures or criticism. Wouldn't it be a relief to be liberated from the grip of external judgments and even our own self-doubts? Well, Timothy Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, shows us just that. Keller walks us through how centering our identity in Christ can eliminate the noise of opinions and judgments. That's why Back to the Bible Canada is offering this small but powerful booklet 
for free this month while supplies last. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate because supplies are limited.